I'm AJ Bianco from Podcast PD, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows in the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. District leaders nationwide have confirmed that online learning is here to stay, as one in five districts are planning to adopt or have already adopted a fully online school. With the evolving landscape in the competitive field of education, you might be wondering what you can do to stand out. Well, I encourage you to look into National Virtual Teacher Association, or NVTA, to pursue a college-accredited program recognized by states across the country to certify educators in online education. Their certification empowers educators to provide the world-class virtual instruction that every student deserves. The average teacher needs one semester to complete the program, and it culminates in a digital portfolio that you may use in job interviews or even with your current administration to, you know, (laughs) negotiate a raise or promotion. Some of the topics to be covered in the certification include establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources. The NVTA certification process was created to establish a valid and reliable research-based teacher qualification training process for virtual teachers to enhance their teaching and develop their ongoing reflective skills to improve teaching capacity. NVTA certification is a challenging and meaningful process to support your personal and professional goals. NVTA is an affiliate partner for Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Click the link in the show notes or go to my webpage, stephenmaletto.com, find the NVTA logo and go to their website that way. And if you do that, if you buy something, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 gets a commission and I greatly thank you for that. So go check them out. I think you'll be glad you did. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Jared Cooney Horvath and David Bott. They're the authors of 10 Things Schools Get Wrong and How We Can Get Them Right. Whoa, what an awesome book. What an awesome conversation, and there's so much to learn. You're going to love this episode. Thanks for listening. And by the way, before you go, could you go into that app you're listening to me on and, uh, you know, rate and review the podcast? Hmm, you know, that'd be so nice and uh, so wonderful if you did that. Thanks so much. Enjoy. Hey, not so long ago, my uh, my wedding band broke. That's right, and it was unrepairable. Well, that was crazy. And you know, and BooneRings.com came to my rescue. That's Boone Titanium Rings. You can find them at BooneRings.com. And uh, by the way, they're now a, an affiliate partner of ours. But I also use them. My wedding band is now one of their rings, and it's really cool. It's laser engraved and has these these neat stars on it and pistons. But they came to my rescue, and I got to tell you what's really cool, and it's in the name itself, they make titanium rings. This is not going to break, right? (laughs) No way. So not only can you have them personalized, but you can have them engraved, you can have them carved, you can have uh, have them, uh, you know, designs with uh, um, wood, meteorite, stone, precious metals, acrylic, and uh, other inlays. You can also have... uh, uh, these neat rings that, uh, I mean, just wait till you see the the Black Zirconium and Stealth Series rings. I mean, those are just way too cool. And, and you know, and they also make some really cool tool earrings, pendants, and cufflinks. Yeah, Boone Rings is pretty cool. That's right. You ought to go to BooneRings.com. And they're an affiliate partner of ours, which means that if you go to checkout and you use my code, Teaching Learning Leading K-12. So you want to use all caps, T. L-L-K and the number 12. So once again, you use my code, which is all caps T-L-L-K and the number 12. At checkout, you'll get a 10% discount. That's right. And uh, you'll help out the podcast because we'll get a commission. So go to boonrings.com. You'll be glad you did. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Jared Cooney Horvath is a cognitive neuroscientist with expertise in human learning, memory, and brain stimulation. He earned his master's degree from Harvard University and his doctorate from the University of Melbourne. In 2018, Dr. Horvath co-founded LME Global to bring his pioneering brain and behavioral research to teachers, organizations, and professionals looking to boost their performance and gain a competitive edge. 
To inquire about booking Dr. Horvath for a speaking engagement or to view his online courses and training material, visit www.lmeglobal.net. David Bott, postgrad DipEd, postgrad DipEd Psych, is the Associate Director of the Institute of Positive Education. As an expert in applied well-being science, David has supported thousands of educators from hundreds of schools around the world in designing and implementing system-level approaches to well-being. David sits on the Dubai Future Council for Education and is published in academic journals and industry periodicals. He currently serves on the board of the Positive Education Schools Association. Today we're focused on their book, 10 Things Schools Get Wrong and How We Can Get Them Right. Jared and David, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. No, thank you for having us on. It is lovely to meet you and your audience. Well, I'm glad yeah, you're both, great to have it. Glad you're both here and uh, appreciate it and uh, um, good stuff. So, uh, so, you know, before I started recording, um, because I got so carried away listening to what we were talking about, I got to ask this question. So, Jared, you're not from Australia, but you're in Australia. And David, you're born and raised in Australia. And so you're from Australia. So, so real quick, we got to, you know, so tell us a little bit about where you're from, David and, and Jared, if you guys could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm the expat. I was uh, born Pittsburgh, raised Denver, spent time in LA and Boston, kind of been everywhere, but my wife is from Melbourne. So about 10 years ago, moved down here to marry her. When you find a good one, you, you can't let it go. So I've been down here ever since, Dr. Bot. Yeah, so I'm born and raised in Melbourne, Australia, and have uh, have worked in uh, in education in Australia, in Tokyo, in Japan, uh, in the UK, uh, and, and most of my career in Australia, though. So, yeah, boring Australian, third, fourth generation Aussie. Uh, but it's, it, is, it is fun being down here and some great educational work happening in Australia, Steve, as there is uh, in your neck of the woods as well. Very cool. And I got to tell you, this is, this is, this is awesome. Although, you know, I think if you want to see me totally mentally challenged, it's try and figure out the clock and uh, the calendar between, between our worlds. So <laughs> we missed it by an hour, but we got here. We got here in the end. And you, can, you can tell it's morning here. You can, you might be able to hear the dump truck. Oh, right nice. outside my garage. It is, it is trash day. Trash day. And I remembered my wife was very pleased with me. Very nice. So I have to ask this question. So I'm, <laughs> I'm talking to, you're living in Australia, you're from Australia, and uh, um, so you've been, have you been out, do you go fishing any? I, I, I do a little bit of fishing, actually, yeah, yeah, I've got a five-year-old son, Steve, who's uh, fascinated by boats and water, and so we do a little bit of fishing, rarely catch anything, certainly anything edible, but we, we enjoy a little bit of fishing, yeah. Awesome, awesome. I, do you go I, do you go fishing a lot, Steve? I like to fish. Um, am I good yeah. at it? No. And do I do it a lot? Not as much as I'd like to, but I I love yeah. you know. I just um, I think it'd be cool to uh, one day be able to go fishing off the coast of Australia yeah. somewhere. I think I've, be I've heard I've been um, deep sea fishing. Yeah, I've never gone like with an actual like where you sit on the edge of the ocean and kind of pull in. Right. But the one where you take the boat out and then they just, they put it down for you. In the meantime, you just drink beer for about three hours and they go, Oh, you got one. Reel that in. So yeah, that's probably that, the easiest fishing trip ever. Yeah. That's a cool type of fishing right there. So <laughs> Excellent. So you get back at 10 AM and you can't walk. You're like, Oh, that was a little too early for me. <laughs> nice. nice. Sorry. I just had to ask that question. I, I that's one of my dream well, places. Please. Please come, Steve. You've got two friends in, in Melbourne, Australia. You're very welcome. And all of your audience can stay at Jared's place whenever they like. Everyone's welcome. Appreciate the invite. On, on, on Wednesdays, so come, come whenever you need. <laughs> nice. Well, appreciate that. So, so all right, thanks for um, putting up with me going down that, uh, that path. So let's, let me get us back on the path. Um, so could you guys talk about explaining, first of all, Jared, I got to get you and David to tell us a little bit about what you're, what you're studying and what you do. So, um, you know, Jared, yours is a mouthful cognitive neuroscientist. So what is it and what inspired you to go down that path? Yeah, so I was a teacher originally. So teaching is still my passion, being in schools, working with, with students and teachers. But uh, back when I was teaching, that's when the brain stuff, it started to become the decade of the brain, the century of the brain. And everyone was talking brain and I couldn't quite figure out what the heck everyone meant. Like you'd ask them, this sounds good, but what's actually going on? No one had any depth. So I figured the only way to solve that would be to go back to school and learn that neuroscience stuff myself. And it was only meant to be really a year or two. And then I was going to go back to the classroom, take it back and say, hey, here's the good stuff. But that unfortunately, academia is kind of like a black hole. So I've been here now for about 15 years. And that's what I, I study what's called the science of learning. So neuroscience, psychology, artificial intelligence, behavioral economics, anything that has to do with learning, we try and synthesize 
and then bridge that back to schools, to classrooms and teachers and say, here's what this means for us. Here's the good stuff. Here's the nonsense, the useful bits and the trash. So ultimately, I consider myself now kind of that translator between science and practice, between the laboratory and the classroom is where I sit. Very cool. Thank you. And so, David, how about you? You want to tell us about uh, applied well-being science? What, where are we with that? Yeah. Yeah. So my, my, my background is in, uh, I'm trained in psychology and I, I taught in a classroom for 15 years. I taught high school psychology mostly um, and then stumbled on this whole field of positive psychology, actually, which is the, the science of human flourishing or the science of human happiness. And uh, I've always been fascinated by uh, world-class teaching, world-class pedagogy. I've always been fascinated by what is it that the best teachers in the world do differently from mere mortals like myself. Um, and so there's that angle that's interested me, but also human well wellness and human well-being. So I'm interested in, in humans at their best, both in the classroom and in the real world. And so um, this, this work that I've been doing in, in positive education is really trying to harness human sciences, including many of the sciences that Jared mentioned, behavioral economics, psychology, cognitive neuroscience. But my focus really is harnessing those sciences to optimize the well-being of school communities. And so that's where Jared and I um, met at a couple of conferences over the last few years. Jared comes to the angle of learning science. I come from the angle of well-being science. You know, we're both trying to optimize the experience of a child and a, and a teacher in a school community, but just with slightly different angles, I guess. Very cool. Very cool. Appreciate it. And, it, and, and so we're going to use this as, as, you know, our intro into, into going into the book that you guys have written, which is called 10 things schools get wrong and how we can get them right. And, and what I think is cool is that uh, you're not going down the path that uh, I think some people would think you were going down. Um, and so, which is, is rather cool. And you make that point in the introduction. So one of the things that I want to, uh, you know, in the introduction, this is noted, uh, by the way, you know, it's funny, as a kid, I don't know how much stuff I must have missed out on in high school and early college days by not reading the introductions, you know, because I always thought, hey, that's fair game. We'll just skip over that. <laughs> I don't. Right. I, I'm same as you. I never used to read them. In fact, I tell people I hate them. I hate introductions because all they do is tell you what they're about to tell you. That's OK. I'll jump. But I'm with you now. Now I'm like, dang, you get good stuff there. <laughs> you <Yeah>. do. <laughs> you do. And that's like I, I, I now I feast upon introductions where it's all that good stuff I must have missed. You know? But hey, uh, so in the introduction, this is noted. Schools are succeeding. With that said, as the world evolves, so too must certain aspects of education in order to ensure that the greatest number of students undertake the best possible learning. Could you put this in context for the listeners? Yeah, I think I think especially these days, there's just constant calls for revolutions in school. Oh, Tech is around. Now we got to, school is outdated. We got to throw it away and go tech. Oh, kids are not creative. We got to throw school away. No, we don't need a revolution in school. 85% of what we do works incredible. And just, just look at the, the numbers, the amount of students with access to education, the amount of students graduating, the, the performance gaps, everything is going in the right direction. So by and large, it's worthwhile to recognize that school is working. Education isn't broken. Now what we get to do is we get to say, as educators, as people working in those schools, how do we keep pushing forward? How do we evolve? The point of, an expert, of being an expert in a profession is to continually push your profession forward. So what we're trying to do with this book is we're not saying, man, school is, is broken, everyone go home. Those kind of arguments are just pedantic, annoying to us. It's, yeah, you're killing it. What's our next step? What can we do to take this to the next level now? And that, that I think will, will never end. No matter how far education gets, we're never going to solve it. We're always going to have that last 10, 15% where we can keep iterating, keep improving. And that's the point of being a professional. So we're just trying to point out where are some realms that we could keep playing in to kind of move to that next level. Very cool. Very cool. I, I, I just... It's just kind of like a refreshing sort of <laughs> way to start to, <laughs> yeah. to start a book because it's kind of nice to have that uh, that thought because you're right. I mean, it's one of the things you know. One of the things that's awesome about education is that I like to say there's not a there's never a pinnacle. We're we're kind of we're always got to be learning and uh, yeah. Every, and take it outside. It's it's like science too. Is is for a while people thought science would be done. Right? Okay, <laughs> give me another hundred years and we'll we'll solve everything. And now you realize, no, science is, is never going to be done. The job is just to keep 
pushing forward, stand on the shoulders of what came before and show how we can go even further. And it's the same, same thing with education is we're doing good. It's just, where do we want to go next? Yeah. I like that as well, Steve, you know, Jared and I both get the opportunity to work with schools all around the world and what we see time and time again, and I was at a school yesterday, I'm going to be at a, another school in the North of Australia tomorrow. When we walk into schools, almost every single time you walk in, you get greeted by people who love children, who've chosen a profession that is their, you know, they've chosen that because they want to impact the next generation. They want to contribute to making the world a better place. You see tired people pretty much in every school you go into because you have incredible dedication of people's heart and soul. Educators are um, absolute professionals by and large, and they're doing an incredible job. And so this kind of argument that education is broken is absolute nonsense. What we actually have is, um, incredibly dedicated professionals who are doing a wonderful job under incredibly stressful uh, situations. And so, yeah, we, we absolutely have huge respect for the day-to-day teacher who's dedicating their life to, you know, to raising the next generation. So we have to start there and acknowledge the, the strengths in the education system. And as Jared said, if you look at the statistics globally, you know, it, whether it's women's education or whether it's diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, the, the work we're doing is getting better and better as well. It, it, you know, statistically, education is succeeding overall and and there are some opportunities to do things just a little bit better love it i love it it's it's just encouraging to hear that because too often you know and, and you guys get into this in the in the book where too often part of what uh, uh the message is the exact opposite and we'll we'll come to that because i gotta uh, talk about that but good stuff i loved i just love that starting off that way in the introduction good good stuff there you know in, in chapter one titled expertise the problem with experience This very powerful comment is made, accordingly by the very definition of expertise, the only experts in teaching are teachers themselves. Can you shed some light on why this is important to understand? Yeah, if you go back to kind of what we've just been talking about, these revolutionary arguments where every outsider and their mother thinks they know more about teaching than teachers do, simply because they've been to school. But there's no other profession in the world where we think this. I went to the dentist last week. I don't presume to know what dentists do. I watch sports every weekend. I don't have a clue what it takes to be a professional athlete. But I've been to school. Therefore, I know what teaching is. Let me tell you how to do your job. And I think that's where a lot of these revolutionary arguments go way off kilter is you're using outside perspectives to talk about the craft of teaching. Once you recognize that teaching is itself a skill is a set of behaviors that you can get better at. Then you start to recognize that the only people we should be listening to when it comes to teaching are the people who have dedicated their time, effort, energy to that craft. In other words, teachers are the experts when it comes to teaching. So when we're talking education, our first port of call should be to the people who know this stuff better than anyone else in the world. And instead, we tend to treat them, a lot of, of, of people tend to treat them as just tools, levers that we use to get to the kids. Nope, they've got more knowledge, understanding than we would ever have as outsiders. That should be where we start everything. And I think, uh, let me add Steve as well, if you think of any other field of expertise, whether it's uh, an elite tennis player or an elite violinist or a heart surgeon or whatever you want to think about, the way you become expert in that is by doing thousands and thousands of hours of high quality practice on the ground. You don't become an expert tennis player by reading lots of books or studying top spin in the laboratory. Roger Federer became an expert tennis player because of the thousands and thousands of hours on the court. And that's how teachers become expert in their craft as well. Of course, it's great that we can read the science and there's theories that come out and mindset theory is exciting and can inspire us to think differently maybe but you don't become an expert teacher by reading Carol Dweck's theory of mindset. You become an expert teacher by doing thousands of hours of practice in real classrooms. And that's how you become an expert in any craft, including teaching. Yeah. And I love that. Cause that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, eventually what's got to happen is hopefully somewhere along the line, someone has explained to them what it means when you go to teach it means you're going to be working with kids. And so they've not forgotten that because you're going to learn so much once you're with the kids, you know, and every, and yeah. that's, I, I was at a um, meeting a couple of years ago, a government meeting here on curriculum. And it was, it was it, I was about a hundred people in a room talking curriculum. And I said, Hey, could you please raise your hand if you're a teacher? 
of those 100 people, how many were teachers? Not a single one. Uh, and you had lawyers, you had politicians, you had researchers. And I said, don't you think this is a bit of a, a problem? And their collective answer was no, because we're here for the students. Teachers will do what we ask them to do. And that's where that's one of the points where I stopped and, and had to rethink a lot of stuff and say, wait a second, this, this entire conversation should be primarily teachers and we can chime in with outside tips. Like, well, we know from science that maybe this might be an idea, but ultimately once you recognize that teaching is a craft, is a profession itself, then you have to give due to the professionals who are actually performing it. Yeah. That's crazy stuff there, by the way. That's, you know, <laughs> yeah, I know. They'll do what we want. Let's to talk do. about school without the people who are doing school. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Sure. Fair nice. Enough. Nice. Um, just as a, so let's, let's move on through the book a little bit more. So chapter two begins this way before kicking off. It's worth clarifying that whereas in the previous chapter, we explored academic theorization, the development of models to describe the learning process. Here we are shifting our focus to scientific research, the generation of data to determine which practices most lump together. The relevant considerations for each are very different. I love this. Uh, what is it that you want the reader to recognize after reading this chapter? So I think if you go chapter one, we're looking at the idea of expertise and practice is researchers, scientists, of which I am now one, we are experts in the learning process, which is very different than the teaching process. So in chapter one, we're differentiating between learning and teaching and clarifying that there are different expertise. In chapter two, now we go into evidence where now once you've separated the laboratory from the classroom and you've established that they're two very different and specific places, now you get to come in and talk about evidence. Where is your source of evidence when it comes to teaching? And right now, everyone who's talking in education about evidence-based practice are referencing laboratory-based research. They're saying scientists have said this, but if we've already established that there is a big difference between classroom and laboratory, then using evidence born in the laboratory is necessarily going to be removed and by and large irrelevant, not irrelevant, but difficult to make sense of inside of a different realm inside of the classroom. So in this chapter, our goal is to start to suss out what is evidence, what does it mean, and why is laboratory evidence maybe not the best source or the only source of evidence we can be drawing on as teachers. And we start to say, what is our evidence base in a classroom specifically? Just maybe it might be helpful for your listeners as well, Steve, is the an analogy that we, we, we reference in this chapter is that in medical research, where what we see in the medical field is that um, 90% of treatments that are apparently successful in a laboratory that seem to have a beneficial effect in a laboratory, 90% of those treatments that when they're applied to humans in the real world are either inert or they're ineffective or harmful actually. So 90% of drugs that seem effective uh, in a sanitized laboratory condition don't actually work in the real world. And that's because the real world is far more complex, far more nuanced than a laboratory. And, you know, the, the way I sometimes talk about the difference between science and education is that they're philosophically opposed. Science, the scientific method by its very nature is designed to eliminate variables, to isolate variables. Great teaching, you know, education, when it's done well, on the other hand, is designed to embrace variables, the uniqueness of every single lesson, every single child, every single educational setting. It's, it's really about embracing of the variables and that's what makes it beautiful and special and, and messy. And that's why, you know, we have to be very, very careful when we pick up laboratory empirical data and we try and use that to direct or prescribe teaching. I, I love that so much because this is, you know, it's one of the things that it's really, it's hard to explain to, to, to somebody if they don't understand what it's like because you know the variable of a kid and if you've got 20 some of them 30 of them you know when I first started teaching they were we weren't supposed to have more than 32 in a class and I was had 38 in my classes and you know and mm. you know and it's like oh my gosh just you know just one of those kids can can take you on a path <laughs> that yeah. you didn't know you were going down I don't mean that in a bad way either sometimes it's just a great path <laughs> <laughs> and that's it, but it's it's a path that no researcher in a clean, sanitized laboratory, it's not something we ever think about. So we come out with yeah. these theories, do this, but we've never take, taken the time to say, well, wait a second, what is your context? And, and I think it's important to point out, so in the chapter, we go into this issue of emergence. So just for, for the listeners who are thinking, oh, we're just talking philosophy. No, there's actually, <laughs> there's strict scientific boundaries that we can point out to you 
about why laboratory research tends to fail in a classroom. And it's in, I, I don't want to go too, too deep into details, but I'll just say this is we tend to think that when we move between contexts, you get what's called um, an additive change, right? So if something works in a classroom, in the real world, it should work plus some of these other things. So it still is good. It's just, we've got other things to think about as well. And that's not true. What happens as you move through different contexts, you get what's called um, ecological change. So think about it this way. I've got a garden behind me. You can't see it now. It just looks like behind this prison cell, there's a garden. <laughs> if I were to throw some beetles into this garden, I wouldn't have my garden plus beetles. The beetles by definition would change the very structure of that garden. What is the food chain? What are the chemicals moving around? How does everything work? The whole thing shifts. It's an ecological shift. It's the same thing moving research between the laboratory and the classroom. When we go from one to the other, it's not laboratory research plus kids. The kids change everything. And now something that once was good can become bad. Something that once was uh, uh, null could become highly meaningful. And until we accept that, we'll never recognize that we need evidence by teachers, for teachers, of teachers in a classroom. That's where they get to start to decide their own body of knowledge. What is meaningful for us? Because no one else in the world can handle those circumstances, those emergent properties other than teachers. Very much so. That's a, it's just so amazing that uh, th there are so many who don't see that at all. <laughs> it's, I, and the only, what is the only excuse people say? It's because they've been to school. And that's the only thing I can hang my hat on for why people refuse to acknowledge teaching in schools are very specific <laughs> professional places. Because I've been there, it must be nothing. But I don't, I, I don't know. I can't think of any other reason why people are just refusing to see this stuff. I got I to gotta ask, and... Uh, uh, if, if you don't want me to go this direction, I can delete this out. But I, um, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts right now is there's a whole lot of focus here on, in, in um, at least this part of the states in, uh, on uh, using avatar training with, with teachers, the idea that there's this electronic classroom and, and the teacher stands in front of it and then there's actors who are doing stuff and the, the teacher has to respond to that. And it's one of those things that... Uh, one of the things that bothers me is that they're actors that are being kids. Kids don't follow a script. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes some of the weirdest things happen simply because kid flipped open their phone. Boy, that's old thinking. They flip open their own. <laughs> they, they, look at, they look at their phone. Blackberry. And, you're right. Exactly. I'm a little far back there with that reference. They, they, they open their phone. Oh my gosh, I did it again. They look at their phone and there's a, uh, um, there's an Instagram, uh, um, or Snapchat, and it's, uh, you know, something about them or something that makes them angry. And the next thing you know is they look around, and by the way, this is a very real description of something that I had to deal with as an administrator. The, the kid looked, and there was a kid in the classroom that was making fun of him, and so he stood up and hit the kid in the mouth <laughs> and then sat back down thinking that that was going to be the end of it. But, uh, you know, but it, how do you – really, you're going to do that in an avatar? I mean, I don't know. You know, it's um, – I love that kid's thought process, though. Well, that's done with. Yeah. No, nope, now we got to deal with that. <laughs> There's going to be yeah. consequences for that one. Dang it. And it was so you, when you say this, are you, so are teachers actually being trained kind of on VR that's where, headsets? Like, that's where some of the universities are, are looking at trying to take this. And uh, yeah. the idea of uh, that they would get this experience with a VR sort of situation with uh, working in there. And I didn't mean to take us that way because that's not your book. No, I love it. David, do you have any, I have something I want it, but David, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think we've got a whole chapter, Steve, as you know, on, on computers yes. um, and, and digital technologies more broadly. I, I, I think um, personally, I, I won't speak on behalf of Jared, but personally, I, I'm a, I love technology. I'm surrounded by it. I, I, I love new iPhones and I've got a home kit kind of kitted out. I, I, I love technology. I find it really exciting, <clears throat> but people like me sometimes get carried away with technology and we see that it's ubiquitous and it's around and therefore we assume that we should try to use that technology to in the classroom or for education. I think that's a, it's a real danger and a real risk. Um, the, the way we, we are, oh, the way I certainly conceptualize digital technologies is this, that they're awesome. They can be inspiring, but they should always be plan B plan. A should always be, human to human 
interactions when we can get real kids with real teachers. Let's train teachers in that way. Let's get a kind of apprenticeship system where you've got expert teachers, experienced expert teachers training new rookie teachers in real classroom settings. That's got to be plan A. Now, that's not always possible. And COVID's shown us that, you know, the, the schools can stop kind of in a moment and we have to look for other options for plan B. And that's where computer technology has been amazing to keep us schools going during the, the worst times in COVID. But computer digital technology, in my mind, should always be plan B. So I, my question back to you, would Steve, would be, is, is that the only option to use these avatars? Because I can see some benefit of it. And maybe you inoculate people, you prepare teachers for things that might happen. But it seems to me that that's kind of the using of technology because it's there, not because it's a better way to train teachers. Mm -mm -mm. Preach it. Yes, that's where I, I stand in that same, because I, there was a school down here, a Greek school, and they want to teach. So all the kids have to learn Greek because most of their parents are so cool. We want to learn Greek grandparents. So somebody brought in VR and sold them $10,000 VR headset kit so kids could practice Greek talking to an avatar in front of the Acropolis. Wow. And I'm just sitting there going, you know, there's an easier way to do this. It's called go talk to an actual Greek person, of which you'd assume there would be many in a Greek school. So there are times when something like VR would make sense. Like, okay, you're a heart surgeon and if you make a mistake someone's gonna die in which case let's use vr to make as many mistakes as we possibly can so when we're in the real situation we're going to be good to go when it comes to students and avatars if only there was an easier way to get <laughs> training teachers in front of students to see how to handle that oh wait a second it's called the millions of students in schools around the why waste time in a vr headset when you could take a walk 10 minutes down the street go shadow a teacher and you're going to get real life action. You're going to see how it happens. You're going to get to deal with it. It seems like that's, that's tech for the sake of tech without anyone stopping and saying, wait a second, is this plan B? Is there a better plan A? And yes, of course there is. Unfortunately, it's becoming more plan A and they're, they're doing the thing like the Greek school, which is somebody selling them a lot of equipment and uh, at these universities. And it's, it's like, you know, come, come on now. What is, we're, uh, you know, there's nothing, it, the computer's not going to act like a kid only so often. I mean, it's, you know, it, we did it at, at uni too. It's across the board where the med school got a bunch of equipment like that um, for surgeries. And then they decided to try and start teaching what's called declarative knowledge, just facts on it. So they created this whole program where med students get to walk through a heart to see all the different valves and how it works. You come out of this like hour long simulation, like that's cool. Those kids learned almost nothing compared to kids who spend 30 minutes dissecting a heart and talking about it. So it was like, wow, that was wonderful tech. What the heck was the point of any of that? Just go back to the methods that we know work, which are one-on-one -on -one, talk to a teacher while you're dissecting a heart. Best way to do it still. Amazing how that works. So I appreciate oh. you going down that path with me, both of you. That was, that was good stuff. You gotta, I got to, you know, chapter three delves into grading. Now talk about a chapter that could rile many. <laughs> could you share a little bit about understanding the difference between grades and assessment? Because that, that's one of the paths that you definitely take here. Yeah. Is So you can assume assessment is anything that you're doing to establish where a kid is moving in his or her learning. And a good rule of thumb, pretty much anytime a kid opens their mouth, it's assessment. Anytime a kid does anything, it's an assessment. They're showing you how they understand stuff. You can use that then as a teacher to say, okay, here's where we've got to go next. Assessment is, is merely a stop where we now get to say, using what you've just shown me, I as a teacher now can use that as information to determine what my next steps are to guide your teaching. Grades, on the other hand, have nothing to do grades are kind of the culmination of assessment but if you think about it ultimately grades have nothing to do with learning there's nothing inherent in a grade that tells me this is where you're at this is where you need to go next a grade tells you nothing it tells me nothing so at the end of the day assessments wonderful grades are just this tack on which serve only one purpose and that's to rank individuals to say cool compared to all your peers here's where you're sitting and to see how you now that's useful for some people and I'll let kind of you guys riff on that but just to kind of see the absurdity of it is just think about those those speed signs which flash your speed so it says you know speed limit 25 and it flashes your speed as you go by you're going 37 that's assessment and feedback yeah you're going 37 that's personalized information I now can adjust my speed to make sure I know what's going on 
But imagine you drive by that speed sign, it says speed limit 25, and it flashes you C+. Well, there's no inherent information in there. So according, compared to all the other cars driving by, you're right in the average. That means nothing to me. So I'm just going to keep tooting away at 37 going, well, I guess that's good enough for now. So here's where you start to recognize it. What is the point of adding a grade to an assessment? What purpose does it serve if it's not a learning purpose? And if once you start asking those questions, you kind of get into some deep waters with that. But I'll throw it over to David. <laughs> I know he has some thoughts. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I'd ask a, an even bigger question, or maybe more profound question than Jared. Um, Jared's question is, what purpose does it serve? I, I'd also ask, who does it serve? Um, and I think when we start asking that question, who do grades serve? The answer is not the student. The answer is maybe universities or the system. That I mean, that's why we rank students. That's why we assign a letter grade to people's thoughts. Like you, you take a a 15 year old kid who's inspired by the world and writing a beautiful English essay. And then we just put a, a letter grade on there. The reason we do that is because it's an efficient way to rank students. And why do we want to rank students? Well, we need to, for some reporting system, the government mandates, or maybe the universities have told us that's what you got to do. Harvard says, you know, you got to rank kids. So teachers say, okay, even though we think it's a, ridiculous or we don't think probably that's a lot of the time it actually teachers don't really think we just do because you know, we're busy or we're, you know, kind of part of the system, which kind of go through the motions. Um, but when you stop to answer, you know, what are grades for and who are they for? And the answer becomes pretty clear that they are not for students, that they're there to serve something other than the students. And I think that's really problematic. Uh, I love this discussion because that's something that, uh, you know, it's, it's so much people just get lost in the idea that it's, you know, the grades met really something about measurement when it's, it really has more to do with saying, you know, this is where you sit as opposed to, you know, helping me. And I like the, I like the thought about the speed limit sign because it's like, i got a C plus. That means I'm not doing it well enough, which means I need to go faster or I need to go slower. Which one is that? Yeah, so. What do I do with this information? <laughs> yeah, this yeah, is, but I think you're, you're spot on is, is it, it feels we're in this kind of weird zone where everyone expects it right? Universities expect it, jobs expect it from university, parents expect it from schools, uh, government now expects it if you want to get funding. And it's, so it's become this kind of train, runaway train without a conductor, where if, if you stopped and just pulled the brakes and you could just go back to base facts and say, okay, what is the function? We know by the, we know that the grade was invented. The grade wasn't, hasn't been around. That's not been a part of education forever. It was invented in 1792 by a guy named William Farish. Before him, never happened. Like you go back to Thomas Jefferson, and like David was saying, kid writes an essay on uh, ethics, right? And I say, well, compared to these other essays, that's a C plus. You tell Thomas Jefferson that I just ranked your thinking. He'd, he'd say that's nonsense. You cannot rank another human being's thoughts. That's not what a thought is for. If that doesn't seem weird to us, it's purely because for 200 years we've been doing this, and it's just part and parcel of our job. But it's not natural. It's not always been there. And now we can go back and say, what is its function? What is its purpose? Who is it serving? And if we don't come up with a valid answer as to this is still meaningful, then we can stop. And I think, I, and I wanted to, I just listened to a new um, story on all this year about the SATs being dropped. And you saw how fast universities pivoted. Everyone said, oh, if you drop SATs, ACTs, oh, no one will be able to, how will universities know who to take if we can't rank our kids this way? Took them all of a month to reset and go, no, sweet, we're going to do this. And a lot of them are saying, we're actually happier without it. If you took the next step and said, cool, we're also not going to give you grades. We're just going to give you a student transcript. Here are the courses they've taken. Here's a portfolio of their work. Oh my, that means it's going to be another hour of work for universities but who cares? They will adjust to us as quickly as they just did during COVID. When we say no more of this, watch when the rest of the world says no problem, we'll find another way to do what we need to do. And now we've taken the burden of ranking kids off of our shoulders. I love that. You know, this, just, go, go ahead. And Sorry, Stephen, just let me reemphasize something Jared's already said here. And that is that we're certainly not arguing we should remove assessment. Um, in fact, all of the all of the literature, all the science we're reading, uh, suggests that you know mastery based assessment is absolutely crucial for both um, you know learning in elementary school or elite 
performance at the highest level. We, we must be ferociously consuming feedback and assessment. We must be prepared to be open to assessment. That's how we grow and learn. So we love assessment, but we're just asking the grades is not the best way to do it. There is a better way to do assessment other than these arbitrary letters, you know, that we're assigning to, to thoughts. I love that. I just wish I had a good argument back when I was in that poetry class that I just really shouldn't yeah. have taken, you know? <laughs> Yes. You, can, yeah. you cannot grade my thinking. That's, that's pretty much that's what I told her. That's, thing. That, yeah, that's pretty much what I told her. I thought po poetry is this out of the heart and all this. She yeah. said, yeah, but you still got to see. So <laughs> you, you didn't move me as much as this other kid. Oh, well, okay. Fair nice. <laughs> so uh, there's something cool that you get into in, in another chapter called Transfer Dilemma. I love this, the way this chapter starts. Um, can you explain what Transfer Dilemma is? Yeah, so... Every teacher knows transfer, the ability to move skills, knowledge, um, understanding between the different contexts. So I can do it here in math class. Can I do the same kind of procedures over here in science class? And ultimately, when you think about it, transfer is the big goal of education, right? I love that you can do things in my classroom, but I really want you to be able to now apply this understanding in the real world. I love that you can do equations in this book, but can you go... Uh, do a do a family budget when you get home like how can you use this in your real life so transfer how do we move things and the problem is the big dilemma the big trick is transfer never happens automatically it is the biggest bugbear in the history of the world and it's been forever that human beings do not transfer automatically we teach you well and it's even small stuff like kids who can do math using digits give them a word problem and all of a sudden they can't do math and you're like we just did this transfer problem, the transfer dilemma is everywhere. So in this chapter, we take a look at what does it take to actually transfer? What are the hurdles that the obstacles between you and transfer? And then how do we start to consider these kind of more explicitly? No, I, I, I mean, I, I think that's, um, it's again, another example of where um, we got to, we got to ask, like, what's the purpose of schooling? Like, what, you know, it, it gets, it touches, get, gets sort of relates to another chapter, Stephen, at the end of the, the book on the narrative, like the why of schooling, you know, and, and if, if schooling cannot be about just trying to teach discrete skills in a classroom context that we then grade at the end, that we then hope transfers into the real world to produce a successful economy. I mean, that that kind of is the dominant narrative um, of education at the moment. Um, and there are so many reasons why that narrative doesn't really make sense, including this transfer dilemma. So yeah, I, I think so many, so many of these problems point to that final chapter, Stephen, you know, which is asking teachers to or an educators more broadly to just stop for a moment and just ask, hang on, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this and, and who are we serving here? And this is one of the consummate chapters that I would say is a science of learning. So we, again, David and I, we come from learning and well-being and we kind of meet in the middle. But this is one of those just pure cog learning chapters where you start to see, cool, if human beings don't, chapter, don't transfer and that's something we want, then what is required? And just so the, the readers kind of have a sense of what's going on is the, those three hurdles that you have to overcome for transfer is you've got knowledge is you cannot move skills into a realm you don't understand. Like right now, Steve, I guarantee you're incredible, uh, critical thinker. You've been using it with our book. You've been using it with us. You use it with students every day. Sweet. So if I say, go use your critical thinking skills in neuroscience, go dissect this brain and critically evaluate what I, what's wrong with this brain. You're like, I don't, I don't even know the basic information. So knowledge is step one. If you don't have the facts of where you're going, there's no transfer. Then context is step two. Here's where you realize that skills change context to context. Something like creativity is very different in a laboratory than it is in an operating room, than it is in a Google lab. It's we're still using the same word. It's just the specific sub skills you use are gonna change depending on context. That context is defined by the knowledge. So you get your knowledge, use that to redefine your concepts or your skills. And now the final stage is you have to now adapt your skills. Now you have to say, cool, I've got a new definition of what it means to collaborate. How do I tweak my skills to match this new definition? And all three of those steps take explicit thought and time. It's never an automatic process. Even this, something as simple as driving. I drive in the US on one side of the car, move to Australia where the steering wheels on the other. 
it's not an automatic thing. I've now got to consciously think every time I get in the car, am I doing this right? Where does my hand go? Am I going the right way down this road? So once you recognize that, con- that transfer isn't an accident, transfer isn't something that just magically happens. Now you get to start to say, cool, A, how do we start to embed transfer in everything we do? We make this part and parcel of the learning process. And B, all these arguments for 21st century skills, where it's like, we have a curricula that's going to make kids creative. Well, no, you don't. Not if you're not thinking about the transfer issue. You can have a curriculum that makes kids creative in the specific context in which in which you're working with them. But if you never consider the transfer issue, they're not going to be any more creative than Joe Schmo down the street when they move to the next level of learning or when they move into the real world. It just doesn't move. So from, for all these arguments of C21 skills and all these things we need to imbue kids with, nope, if you rewind the clock, the one thing we need to give them is transfer, is learning, is they need to know how transfer and the learning process works so that way they can drive their own transfer process. Now, when they start learning about creativity, now they, they know the steps, what's required to make that useful elsewhere. Otherwise, it's all just noise. If, if I can use that as well, Steve, those are uh, the 21st century skills that uh, Jared's referring to. You know, they're, they're yeah, you can argue very, relatively arbitrary as well. You know, and those 21st century skills, the four C's, they were literally cr- created or concocted at a, at a hotel in Texas at a, a, a breakfast meeting that um, where multinational American companies sat around the table and decided that creativity and collaboration were more important than forgiveness and integrity and hope and trust and compassion and love. You know, we chose those four 21st century skills over a whole range of others. And now suddenly there's this worldwide emphasis on creativity and collaboration, uh, critical thinking. Um, and we're not saying those are not important. They are, of course, they're, those are important. I, I don't think they're more important than hope or integrity or trust or forgiveness, for example. Um, and so not only are they uh, not transferable, but also there's an overemphasis, I think, on these uh, particular skills when I would argue that, you know, particularly my, with my lens around well-being and, um, you know, moving the world to a kind of better planet, I, I think there are more essential skills as well. So I think it's problematic both from a transfer perspective and from a kind of arbitrary focus on four specific skills. And it's, I would say it's, it's arbitrary overall, but it's not arbitrary when you see that the people who selected it, as you said, were multinational corporations. They flat out said, these are the skills future employees need if we want our companies to make more money. They flat out said this. So that's why that's kind of my favorite thing about this entire topic is those 21st century skills that that people use. We need an education revolution. Why? Because school, old form school was just meant to pump out workers, but this new form school is going to pump out human beings. No, the things that you're hanging your hat on, creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, were literally selected to make better employees. That's why things like trust and hope and well-being weren't selected because those aren't going to make companies more money. So it's funny that I just love that all the progressive educators who use these 21st century skills as a rallying call, if you just rewind the clock, who, who, who selected those? It's the people that you are trying to rally against. So it's, it's almost this cross-purpose where it's like, well, well, do a little bit more homework and you might be saying something else. I love this section of the book and you're hitting, you're just nailing it right now. Cause that's, that's that, that part that, you know, everything from, you know, there's all that stuff that they think makes them look good, I guess, you know, maybe it needs a yeah. grade, uh, makes them look great. Good from, you know, the, as they referenced this in the past type of thing. And then now we're going to do this. Yeah, you're right. It is. It's all about, uh, it's, <laughs> we're, it's, I mean, it's, it's same stuff, what they're talking about and complaining about. Yeah. So it's, um, good. That's an awesome chapter. And I, you know, we're, we're starting to run out of time, which I hate because I think I, I get, I, I, is there any way I can just make you guys stay here in their mind? Um, but <laughs> <laughs> we're coming in late. We're going to come hang out with you guys soon. Yeah. You got to do that. You got to do that. The, uh, um, I gotta, you know, one of the things that I want to make sure that, uh, as we finish up here, uh, um, there's a new, there's, you got a YouTube channel, um, that's, that you got there, which I love the, yeah. If you check out, yeah. So if you, if, and what's good is we're, we're putting up joint videos now. So if you just look up my name, Jared Cooney Horvath on YouTube, every two weeks we put out a video, it's called from theory to practice. And it's, it's explicitly this idea of how do we take something from the laboratory and make it meaningful for teachers. So every week we just take a new bit of research and do what's called translate it. We say, cool, here's what it means. Here's what it says. 
Now for teachers, here's how we can use it. So little five to seven minute bites every couple of weeks. So like a couple of weeks ago, there was one on homework. You know, you do one on rewards, whatever the heck it is. And if you want to take a look, we're also, David and I ran a couple of, of webinars on different book chapters, including this 21st century skills one. So if you want to know more about transfer, there's a whole webinar on that. And we're going to start releasing those starting today. So you'll also get kind of this more longer form content there too. But it's just another resource so we can get these ideas out to people and say, start playing with this stuff. I love it. It works good. I love the, um, just the, the topics and so forth. And uh, it's, it's really good. Good stuff. So oh, thank uh, you. And uh, uh, Jared and David, before we close, if someone to connect with you guys uh, or learn more, where you want to send them? Yeah, I'm, I'm easy. Check me out on, on YouTube or if you go to lmeglobal.net, there's a bunch of stuff there. David, what do you got? Yeah, I think probably on Twitter, um, Jared and I are trying to um, have some interesting discussions on Twitter. So my, I'm at David Bott and Jared is at JC Horvath. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Um, and, and also on LinkedIn. Uh, and LinkedIn is you know, a, a growing um, platform as well for, for educators to connect. So look me up on LinkedIn, Twitter, and we'd love to connect with educators. You know, we, we are genuinely inspired. We, we love, Jared and I are both passionate about education, classroom, teaching, and we, we are, you know, Jared claimed he's a neuroscientist. He's actually a, a student more than anything. You know, we love learning from other educators and we, we want to um, elevate uh, the profession really and, and inspire teachers to see what they are. And that is an expert in their craft and to, and to encourage them to share more broadly so that we can all learn from the you know, best practice that's happening around the world. So, yeah, thank you very much, Steve, for the opportunity to, to be part of today. It's, it's been a great conversation, really fun. I love your questions. I love your voice as well, by the way. Thanks. I just kind of got lost in some of your questions because it's such a, <laughs> such great questions and uh, it's been really fun. Thanks, Steve. I was thinking that too. It's kind of that radio announcer, like really smooth voice. Oh, good call. Yeah. yeah thank you, Steve. This has been really good. Well, I appreciate it, guys. And, I, and this has been awesome. I got to, um, it, it's, it's just been incredible. And the book is amazing. You know, it's, uh, um, you know, I, I can't say enough about uh, people listening. You got to make sure you get a copy of it. It's called 10 Things Schools Get Wrong and How We Can Get Them Right. It's engaging, thought provoking. And uh, the, the thing you're going to want to do is you're going to go want to buy multiple copies and go make sure that each one of your lawmakers <laughs> gets a <laughs> copy and sits that down and reads with you. All right. That's 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 what you're going to want to do. And yeah. some colleagues, too. You know, all right. So, um, guys, thank you so much. This has been awesome today. I appreciate it. No, thank you. We'll do it again sometime when we got more time. Let's go fishing, Steve. Come go. Let's go fishing. Come down to Melbourne, Australia. Hey, did you know that you can buy me a soft drink? That's right. By going to buymeacoffee.com slash Stephen Maletto, you can support Teaching Learning Leading K-12 by making a donation. And it's really cool. We got this little cool uh, soft drink cup right there. <laughs> that would be so awesome if you do that. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash Stephen Maletto, and you can help support Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Thank you so much. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.